you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've probably heard someone say something like, you know, I, I have trouble reading the Bible because it's boring. And maybe you've even had some trouble as you've been working through the, the Bible and coming to some texts like Leviticus or maybe some of those pesky genealogies, and you said, this just seems boring. Well, I want you to know that I, I don't see the Bible that way at all. I mean, I understand that we have trouble with patience and reading, but I really find the, the book of the Bible, as I, I pick it up and as I read, uh, this really is a thrilling book. It is a thrilling history of God's redemptive acts and words and history uh, through which he is actually saving a people to himself. If you read through, you're going to find exciting descriptions of amazing battles between kings and kingdoms. You, you'll see stories of heroes and plagues and Uh, The stories of amazing creatures that exist that we cannot see. See, this book is actually an amazing book. Well, this morning we find ourselves really in the the center of this amazing book thus far and the story of David. Now, David is in 2 Samuel 7 presented as a unique man who receives a unique covenant from God. In fact, as we look at this text, uh, there have been a number of commentators who have highlighted the importance of this story to the grand story of redemption, God's activity in the Bible. Uh, One, Walter Brueggemann actually sees this as what he calls the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament. But it's not just him. Another commentator actually ratchets up the significance of this and calls this the most central Old Testament text in shaping the Christian understanding of Jesus. See, the Davidic covenant, it really is a big deal in the Bible. And so as we think about covenants, we know that God has made a number of covenants throughout history. He made a covenant with Adam in the garden, and then Noah, and then Moses, and Israel, and Abraham. And then finally, we find him making this covenant of David. And there is something special about God's covenant with David. Now let me hit two questions really quick up front that might help us as we go along. Uh, the first question I want to answer is, what is a covenant? And then second, how does the Davidic covenant relate to the other covenants? I think if we look at that, that's going to help us in the future. Now, first, uh, how do we understand a covenant? What is it? Maybe you're wondering what a covenant is. Well, there are really two covenants that we find and uh, that really make and have significance in the text that we're looking at today. You have the Suzerain Vassal Treaty on one hand, and then the Royal Grant Treaty. Now, Suzerain Vassal Treaty is really a a treaty between a great king, a suzerain, and a lesser king, a vassal. And the big king will usually, in one of these treaties, announce what he has done for this lesser king, and then he will say, I'm going to enter into a relationship with you. Here's the law, the rules of the relationship. And if you keep those, then it's going to work out good for you. You're going to be blessed. But if you don't obey it, Uh Uh-oh, watch out, there are going to be curses that come. Now that's one. You see that there are expectations on both parties, the greater king and the lesser king. But there's another kind of covenant. It's called a royal grant covenant. And that's one where a greater king makes promises of blessing to a lesser king, and there aren't really obligations on the part of the lesser king. So like the Noahic covenant. But... Which kind of covenant is David's covenant? Many look at it and say this is an unconditional kind of covenant, a kind of royal grant that is given to him. But I think that Stephen Wellam is actually right 
When he says, we see aspects of both that we are going to notice as we go through this text. See, God makes unbelievable promises that he will keep. But he also has expectations and obligations of the kings that will come from David's line. But how does this covenant second relate to the other covenants? And is this a covenant that is disconnected from all of those other covenants I mentioned? Well, the way that I think about this covenant is really that it's connected to the other covenants in this way. You'll remember that in Genesis 3, Adam sinned against God. He failed to keep his covenant. And God immediately, as soon as Adam fails and curses flow out, he makes this beautiful promise in Genesis 3.15. He says, I'm going to have woman bear a child, an offspring. And he is going to undo all of the works that Satan has just done in removing you from my presence and causing death to enter the world. Well, that is a, a grand promise, but it's really vague. He doesn't really give us a lot more information about what that's going to look like. And that's what we call the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel that we get in the Bible. It comes as soon as the sin comes. Well, my understanding of the way that this and the other covenants work as we go along in the history of redemption is that it works kind of like my TV at home. Now, I, I'm a little bit cheap, so I don't buy cable. And so if I want to catch a football game, what I have to do is I have to actually uh, take my antenna, I bought a high-powered antenna with a 15-foot cord, and I have to reposition it throughout the house so that I can actually pick up a football game and get a clear signal. And so a little bit to the left, and it gets a little bit clearer, a little bit to the right. Uh, there have been Sundays where if you were to walk into my house, you would see that antenna actually duct taped to our ceiling fan. Why? Well, that's where we get good reception that day. Well, there's a real sense in which this text, this covenant with David, is the pinnacle or the, the grand picture, the point from which all other, day, all other covenants before it look up to and find their pull, fullest understanding. See, David is going to show us most fully what this offspring that they've been waiting for will look like. Well, that's exactly what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at how the promises made to Adam, Noah, Abraham, and Israel's offspring would be fulfilled through David's offspring. Here's our big idea. If you take notes, a great thing to write down. It's that King Jesus is the faithful son God promised an eternal kingdom and throne to. King Jesus is the faithful son God promised an eternal kingdom and throne to. Uh, we'll notice this first in, in verses 1 to 3 that David wants to build a house for God to dwell in. God, uh, David is, is wanting to build a house for God. Now to understand this text, I think it's important to realize that, that house is used in different ways. Sometimes house means uh, your crib, the place that you live. Sometimes it means a temple, the, the place where a God lives. And sometimes it means a dynasty. And that's we're going to find all three of these in our text. All of them are at play. Uh, you'll remember that we are told back in 2 Samuel 5 that Hiram of Tyr built a house of cedar for David. A, a beautiful home, majestic, fit for a king. He, he did this after Israel had anointed David as king and after David had placed the ark in Jerusalem and he had rest from all of his enemies, we are told, he, he then is in his home. And David really thinks that he's arrived when his eyes begin to drift from this great house that he's living in to the tent where the ark of the name of God is dwelling. 
And a new character introduces himself here, prophet Nathan, he comes in and David says to him, it's not right, I'm living in a mansion. And you look at God, he is still living in a tent, he's still camping. See, I look permanent, but God looks like a resident alien. Let's build God a house, a temple. I think David really wanted to do God a solid. Maybe even hoped that God would in some ways give him favor for this house that he would build him, this majestic cedar house. And of course, Nathan, a prophet, he sees how God has been for David. He said, that's a no-brainer. Let's go ahead and get to it. In verse three, he says, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. We've seen it. Not so fast. Second, Yahweh says he never asked for a house to dwell in. Verses four to seven. As Nathan slept, he dreamt. And in that dream, we find that Nathan receives the longest message from God that we have seen since God's speech to Moses. And here we find, in verses 5 to 7, the words of God that he gives him. It says there this, verse 5, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? See, God places David here in elite company with that little phrase, my servant, that he calls him. I know it might look like he is actually making less of him. We don't think a lot of like butlers or servants or table servers, but here my servant is actually the same address that he had given to Abraham back in Genesis 26, to Moses in Numbers 12, to Isaiah, to Israel, and the Messiah that was to come. See, commentator David Firth says that This is how suzerains, big kings, speak to little kings. Now you'll notice that God places David in the line of of other shepherds that have come before him, who have led God's people, like Moses in the Exodus and all of the other spirit-empowered deliverers that we find in Judges. And in all that time, he's never asked for a house of cedar, a temple, like those housed the territorial gods of the nations. So God's already shown that his, his sovereignty, the, the, the realm in which he reigns and where his power is observed, it is not bound by zip codes like the gods of the nations. See, David's God sits enthroned well above heaven and well above earth is the God of the whole universe and beyond. See, our God is neither parochial nor domestic nor bound by zip codes. No, God's on the move. He's been on the move since the beginning, redeeming humanity and flooding the whole earth with his glory. And David's son Solomon understood this. When God would later have David hand him the blueprints for his temple, his house. I love what 2 Chronicles 2, 5 to 6 says, where Solomon says, the house that I am to build will be great for our God. He is greater than all the gods. 
But who is able to build him a house? Since heaven, even the the highest heaven, cannot contain him. See, God's not needy and he can't be contained. That's the consistent message of the Bible. And I love this. It's a picture of the vastness, the greatness, the transcendence, the glory of God. Our God is neither parochial, nor domestic, nor bound by zip codes. He is the God whom if you as a communist dictatorship say that he is not allowed in, that is where he will build his church. Now imagine here David has a mansion and safety from all of his enemies, and he thinks that he has arrived. Ever been there? Mountaintop experience? You think it can never get bigger than this, better than this? I hope this lasts forever, but it never does. And here's David. He's had his experience. Enemies everywhere, gone. And God's done more than he could imagine, and Yahweh says to him, as he thinks he's arrived, David's not going to build me a house. I'm going to build him a house. David's not going to build me a temple. I'm going to build David a dynasty. See, God's not done yet. David's eyes, they they were small. His vision of what God could do, the God who can do more than he could think or imagine, he, he, he could not understand what God was up to. Notice third, Yahweh's not done building David a house. We see this in verses 8 to 17. See, take note. God's going to make promises to be fulfilled in David's lifetime. And then he's going to make promises that look forward into the future after he dies. See, God will not forget David even in death. Now, first we see these promises that God makes during David's lifetime. He's going to build David a house during his lifetime in verses 8 to 11. Uh, Now, even though the normal word for covenant, berit, is not used here, If you go and you read the Psalms, like Psalm 132, it's looking back on 2 Samuel 7 and what's happening here. And there it says, the Lord spoke a sure oath and calls this a covenant. So notice that God as a great king shares what he has done for David in the past. Before shifting in verse 9 to what he promises to do David in the near future during his lifetime. So you can see that in verses 8 to the first part of 11. Look there with me. Here's what it says. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you could be the prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may, deli- may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. So you'll notice that in the past, God says, he took David from shepherding sheep in the field to make him prince over my people. And my people reminds us of the covenant that God has made with Israel back in Exodus 6-7 where he said, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. I love the picture. You'll remember that there we are told that they are his treasured possession in all of the earth and they will be a royal priesthood and a holy nation 
unto God. They will show the glory of God to the nations. But notice the shift to future promises in the middle of verse 9, where God will give David in the future a great name in all of the earth, a land and rest from all of his enemies. Now, the three things that, that kind of stand out here for me, uh, notice that David already first does have a great name in all the earth. He, he does. And, and even today, we find that this has been fulfilled even more so. Uh, David, more people know about David than know about Genghis Khan, the king of the Mongols. More, know, more people know about David than Alexander the Great of Greece. Uh, second, notice that the blessings to David will pour out on Israel. Did you see that? The, the covenant of promises here to Israel will be realized through David. There's a real sense in which we find that all of those promises that have been made in the past are now in the present going to be fulfilled and experienced through David. Now, I think the saying sums it up best that goes, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And so as goes David, so goes Israel. But third, the fulfillment of these promises will exceed expectations. You'll remember that David, we've already been told that he has rest from all of his enemies in verse 1. But you get here to verse 11, and God is making these promises, and he says, and I'm going to give you an unprecedented kind of rest. But notice that Israel, he is told that violent men will not afflict them, afflict them anymore as formerly, and God will give David rest from all of his enemies. See, David already has experienced rest. He thinks he's got rest. And God says more rest is coming. God is the great king who delivered Israel in the past from slavery in Egypt through Moses and through many judges in the promised land. But God will do greater works and bring greater rest through his king. And as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. I really think that's the longing of every human heart. A leader that brings rest and not confusion. That brings peace and not dissension. And I think we all long for shalom in the home, kind of peace that's brought to us by God. That's why I think that there's something natural in us that, that sort of reviles it at this idea of an abusive dad or a neglectful boss or corrupt politicians. That's why they are nervous. You know, I love that my, my little son, eight years old, Jack, he, he prays with us during our devotions daily, and he's praying for Governor Ducey to make wise decisions because he wants us to have health in our, our state, and he wants us to have uh, a happy life. He really wants peace. He really wants a leader. He wants Ducey to be a leader like God is. We're encouraging the Bible to pray for our leaders in that way. But there's a real sense in which here, God says, I dwell as the leader that you long for with the house of David. He and his line are whom I am going to dwell in as my house. But notice also, B, God also promises David a royal dynasty after his death. In other words, he's not done with David after David dies. Uh, God also makes these future unilateral promises that are going to take place after it says he goes down to lay with his father in verses 11 to 13. Notice what he says there. Look with me again at the end of verse 11. He says this. He says, moreover, 
the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, you'll notice that here God promises to build David a dynasty through an offspring that's going to come from his very body who will build a house for God's name. God will raise up this offspring. He will establish his kingdom and his throne forever. Uh, Again, there are a few things that are interesting here. For one, you'll remember that Chronicles tells us the reason that David is not allowed to build a house for him is because he spilt too much blood. Yet here, it, it seems that the emphasis that's being placed is more on God's initiative and blessing David, not because of who David is, but because of the greatness of who God is. He is the great king over God's lesser king, David. Now here the emphasis is on the greatness of God. But second, notice that Solomon seems to fulfill this in in the near term. Given that David is going to and does task him with building God's house, the temple. Which he does. But third, he promises three things in these verses that he will repeat in verse 16. Notice, he promises him an offspring, a kingdom, and a throne forever. Now, we've got a little bit of a problem here, especially from our perspective in history, knowing how things have gone. You know, whenever I read the the word forever, I'm always reminded of a scene from Sandlot. You'll remember there's this great beast dog that they're all terrified of, And Squints, the little one, is telling the story about this this epic dog that got punished and chained to a stake. And they ask, well, how long is this going to be? And he says, forever, forever, forever. Now, that felt long to some of you. Doesn't even begin to scratch how long forever is. And, And when I hear forever, I recognize the longness of it. And it's hard for me to even wrap my mind around this idea of something that does not end. So I wonder if sometimes when we look at our Bibles, we see forever and we think that must be a metaphor for something because there are metaphors in the Bible. But to make things worse, if you scan down to verse 16, you'll notice that David punctuates the implications of this saying, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You'll notice as you read that, it's not just a forever throne, it's a forever kingdom and a forever, what? A forever seed that will come before him. You know, God promises the same three things, a sure house and kingdom and throne Forever, So forever is really amplifying all of them. Now what's fascinating in verse 16 is the addition of a little word where he says, this is a, I'm going to make a sure house for you. It it evokes the promises that were actually made earlier in 1 Samuel 2 as the book opened and launched. You'll remember there we are introduced to Eli who is an unfaithful priest and his sons are unfaithful. And, And God has said that he is going to remove his favor from him and replace him. 
and he's going to cut them off forever. Here's what he says in 1 Samuel 2.35. He says, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, a priest after my own heart. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. See, God promised to build a sure house for a greater priest and a sure house for a greater king forever. It makes sense that God would have a greater king and a greater peace to lead a people who are God's treasured possession. These people who will be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. But how could the dynasty of a throne, of a kingdom, last forever? Well, there are really two options. There are two options. The first is that God could provide a kind of successive, unbreakable chain of offspring who would always sit on God's throne. Solomon seems to answer this in the near term. Remember that he's an offspring from David's body who builds a house for God. And in some ways, his reign looked even greater than David's, but his throne hardly lasts forever. You'll remember that it's right after he's gone that Jeroboam and Rehoboam split the kingdom into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And it's not much after that that we find that Assyria comes in and takes off Israel into exile. And then in 586, we find that Babylon comes in and and takes away Judah into exile. And so it hardly seems that there is always a throne forever where Davidic heir is reigning from. Hardly looks like that. And even by the time that Jesus shows up, Jesus shows up to an Edomian king who comes from the line of Edom. It's not a Davidic king. So it seems like the, the dynasty has ended. And so the promises of God ended. Well, there's a second way, actually, that God could actually provide a forever offspring. One that seems even more miraculous. And that's for a forever offspring to come and take a forever throne over his forever kingdom later. See, God could provide one offspring from David at a future date who would live and reign over his kingdom forever. And as the prophets trembled over the judgments that were coming upon Israel and coming upon uh, Judah, what we find their hearts doing is drifting towards the reality that the promises that were made in 2 Samuel 7, God will keep his promises, but maybe, just maybe, it's that God is actually going to do this through a Messiah who would come to literally reign from forever over an unshakable throne. And as we see God speaking, thus saith the Lord throughout the prophets, we find greater clarity as to what this Davidic covenant is actually going to be fulfilled and in what way it's going to happen. See, God's promises look better the worse things get. Do you see it? They, they were thinking, well, maybe we'll just have like king after king die. But God says, no, I, I've got better plans for you than that. I've got better plans than just a lifelong of joy and then death. I've come to do more for you through this king, this Messiah that's coming. See, don't miss this. All of the past promises before David now hoped for their fulfillment in the greater Davidic Messiah who would come to bring the greater rest that all of humanity longed for. And catch what he's like in verses 14 to 15. I love this. The king's responsible for being an obedient son to God the Father. 
As you look at verses 14 to 15, uh, this whole section is like a chiasm. And in the center of it, we find verses 14 to 15 that tell us what is this king, this coming Messiah from the line of David going to be like. And here's the description we're given. Verse 14. Here's what the Messiah is going to look like. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now, that's a short little description of what he's going to be like, but it is pregnant with meaning. See, some have called this Davidic covenant an unconditional covenant with unilateral promises from God to God's king. But the main point of the text is really found in this father-to-son relationship of the coming Messiah, or Christ, to Yahweh. Now this was a common description of the way an earthly king would reflect the character of his God. Now we know the Messiah would actually come from David. But he would look like his father in heaven. He would image him. Now you know that sons look like their fathers. And it's not just physical. I have three sons, so I know this. Three beautiful boys who are listening and ducking and hiding and turning red because I just called boys beautiful. They are beautiful to me. Uh, These boys are are all different in in their own ways and their loves and and, and the things that they do well. Uh, They are sons whom my love is is shed, and and there's nothing that's going to take my love away from those sons. But here in this text, uh, what you know is, is that even though this son will not literally, they think, come from the father, uh, he is going to look like the king. And, and that's the way that sons look like their fathers. So for instance, there are some ways that my sons look like me that are not physical, but are more preferential and things that we value. Uh, my youngest son, Jack, uh, knows that if you are Vincent, then you you root for the saints. And so he got a number nine jersey of Drew Brees. And uh, I remember one time he was wearing it for about 10 days straight. You can't imagine how ripe a kid gets after 10 days of sweating and eating and sleeping in this jersey. Now, I'm not going to like explain why as a parent I didn't realize this for 10 days, but I'm going to tell you like this was a gross experience. But there was a part of me that was kind of proud. He, he, he was wearing it because he loved the saints because dad loves the saints. In fact, one of his relatives one time bought him a, a Cardinals jersey. I think it was like Fitzpatrick or something. And he said, I'm not wearing this. And I was like, hey, that's a little bit rude. We need to pull that back. But man, I love you. Why? Because he values what his dad values. His character is beginning to be shaped, even in small, innocuous details by his dad. And that here what we find is, is that this king will look like his heavenly father in his character and in his behavior. So that to see this king will give you an idea of what his God is like, what his great God king is like. But notice that if he commits iniquity or sin, God will discipline him with the rods of men. But his steadfast love will not depart from him. You remember that God, back in 1 Samuel 2, he removed his favor from the priestly house of Eli. Because of his unfaithfulness. You'll remember later 
in 1 Samuel that God removed his love from the anointed king Saul because of his unfaithfulness. He removed his spirit from Saul. But God says there is a new day dawning with David and that I am going to make a covenant. I am making a covenant with him. And I will not remove my covenant love from the house of David. He would not forget the promises that he had made to him. And God would not quit David. But don't miss this. Some kings imaged God better or worse throughout Israel's history. Some kings that came from David's line. But every king was pointing better or worse back to David and forward to this greater coming son who would be faithful in every way to his father, obeying him in every way as the righteous son. The righteous king would uphold the law before the people. Not just in what he proclaimed, but how he lived and make God's people look like God, displaying his glory to the nations. Now don't miss this. Jesus is the offspring of, Jesus, of David that we've been waiting for to bring us rest. This text is really a text that we know is pointing towards Christ. That's why the New Testament opens up in Matthew 1.1 with one of those boring genealogies. Boring if you haven't been waiting for thousands of years for this offspring who's going to undo the works of Satan. And that's why he goes to so much trouble beginning in verse 1 of the New Testament, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And all of those promises come to mind. And, and, and that offspring that we've been waiting for comes to mind. And he meticulously goes through, and here's how he goes to Abraham, and here's how he goes to David, and here's who Jesus is. He's the king we've been waiting for. Now, some of you skip genealogies, but don't miss what Matthew's doing. He's punctuating the faithfulness of God and sending a Messiah from David's own body to reign over his kingdom forever. Matthew says, this Jesus was born of a virgin. He was son of Mary and son of the Holy Spirit of God. He fulfilled Isaiah 7.14's promise that there would be a son that would be coming and born of a virgin. As Isaiah looked back to see how is this son going to be greater than David that comes after David. And when John the Baptist baptized Jesus in Matthew 3, Jesus came out of the water as the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And God the Father opened the heavens and publicly declared, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I haven't been well pleased in a really long time. Like back in the garden. But here we are. This one, he is the righteous son who is obedient in every single way. He's not like any of you who are looking and listening right now. God's pleased because Jesus is the image of the invisible God displaying the character of God in every way. Or I love as Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Matthew 28, 18 ends with this majestic vision of Jesus as he is ascending to be with the Father. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Now why is 
the son of David, the son of God. Well, God says the story of this world really is a tale of two kingdoms. You've got the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. One is eternal and one is passing away. One is the object of God's eternal, steadfast, unwavering love. And the other is the object of God's unrelenting wrath. If you're a non-Christian, you're listening to this, I want to remind you that as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. The New Testament tells us that, that Jesus is that eternal offspring that David was promised. He's the one that we have been waiting on, along with all of humanity. And some might think that the kingdom is, is already fully here. Others tell us that the kingdom is in the land of Israel for the future. But I believe the kingdom, pictured in the New Testament, is already here, just not yet fully. See, Romans 1.4 says this. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. You remember back in 2 Samuel how God promised that he would raise up an offspring of David? love in the New Testament in texts like this in Acts 2 when they speak of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise to raise up his son and here we see this one raised up and given a name high above every name a name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ as Lord Here's why that's important if you're a non-Christian. It means that the kingdom is here, the king is here, and your responsibility is to respond to the king. The Bible tells us that Christ, Christ has called us to repent and believe in the God of this gospel. There's no one without excuse. Everyone is called to bow the knee to this king. And the Bible says that if you turn from living for sin and for this world to living for God's Son, Jesus Christ, putting your faith in Him and His obedient life, His sacrificial death for your sins on the cross and that resurrection from the dead, we are promised that here's what happens. You undergo a domain transfer. See, God, we are told, transfers you through your faith and your union with Christ from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son in whom you have forgiveness and the redemption of sins. King Jesus came and sacrificed his life so that you can have a future and a hope. So let me just encourage you, if you're listening this morning and are not a Christian or not sure that you're a Christian, I want you to pray and just ask Christ, be my king. I need you. There's nothing else that will do. I want the promises that were coming and that have come and have arrived in you. Don't get up without doing that. Let me encourage you. Just email us, call us. We would love to talk to you about what it looks like to become a disciple of Jesus Christ and be a part of his kingdom. There's a message here for Christians as well. Remember, as goes King Jesus, so goes his kingdom, both in the near and the far. There are near and far-reaching implications for this reality for us. Catch this. I love what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 6.18. Speaking here, Paul picks up on God's promises to David, and he applies it to all those who put their faith in Christ. He says this, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. 
That's a, an, that's a Greek translation, English translation of a Greek translation of the Lord Yahweh Sabaoth, the God who sits enthroned above the cherubim. We are told that if we are in Christ, those promises made to David about an offspring are actually for us. So David's story is our story. And Christ has given us the Holy Spirit. And God will never take it away. Not because of how faithful we are, but because of how faithful his Christ is. Jews and Gentiles alike take part in experiencing the fulfillment of the promises to David. So your status, Christian, It is changed today and forever. You bear the presence of God. And that means that God calls us to be faithful sons and daughters who image him. We don't name it and claim it. We we name him and we proclaim him, the Christ. Be encouraged. What this means for us, brothers and sisters, if you're listening and you're discouraged and you're feeling like you have lost the love of God, or that perhaps the love of God can be taken from you. God says because of who Christ is and because of who you are in Christ, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. His love is for you and with you and will not be taken away. But not only that, you need to be reminded of that other side that sometimes we forget, that God disciplines those he loves You you can't lose the love of God, but God disciplines those he loves, those who are not obeying him and imaging him as we have been created to do in Christ. Another text quotes 2 Samuel 7 in the New Testament. That's Hebrews 12. And there we find the pastor applies the discipline of God's son in 2 Samuel 7 to all Christians. And in verse 6 he says this, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Son or daughter. Don't don't miss this. What God is saying here is that he actually prunes the fruitful tree to produce more fruit. And here he promises that discipline actually brings about the fruit of righteousness in Hebrews 12. So that as you're, you're living your life and you're looking to be faithful and you're thinking to yourself, Does God really love me because things have gotten hard? What we are promised is that God never wastes his discipline. He never wastes his suffering. God is always at work meticulously in the lives of his children. He is a father who never loses sight of a child. I don't know about you. I I lose sight of my kids all the time, not on purpose. Like I remember the other day, like, they're outside playing in the yard and you know all of a sudden uh, somebody says hey a woman almost took Jack I'm like what what, just what happened yeah we'll talk about that later but for now I, I just remember thinking to myself God would never parent in that way he never loses sight of us he never takes his gaze off of us and and he never wastes discipline he's never omissive not disciplining us in the way that we need to he's also never oppressive being too harsh in the way that he brings discipline to us. And if you're ever thinking that life is too hard and it's not fair, trust me, God never disciplines in a way that we don't need. And not only that, remember the promise that he brings here. When he cuts us, it's always for the fruit of righteousness. 
He always brings about fruit in our lives through it. So maybe this morning you're feeling like God is disciplining you too hard. And, and I know that feeling where you feel like the world has turned in on you and against you and no one is for you. Well, be reminded that, that God is for you because he's for his King Jesus. And he's for you with the eternal steadfast love that he has for Christ and that Christ has for him. And you've been wrapped up in that love so that there is no discipline that will push his true children away from him. So maybe you're feeling like God is disciplining you too hard right now because you are single and lonely and you don't see any end to it. Or maybe it's because you are facing a sickness that has you constantly wondering, is God judging me because I have done some sin that is directly proportional to this suffering? And maybe even death is coming and maybe and we all are going to die. And you might be wondering even in that, is it my fault? What have I done? Why has God not responded? And you don't see the purpose. We don't always see the purpose. The Bible doesn't always give us the purpose. God is infinite. We are finite. But God never wastes his discipline. He is bringing about good purposes through it. And sometimes good purposes that aren't even just about you, but about the kingdom. Think about a couple of people who suffered faithfully, did not grow weary in doing good, but actually lost their lives to it. I'm reminded of the missionary David Brainerd, who, who died of sickness because of his missionary efforts. And through his death, he sanctified a whole arsenal of Christians who went out and shared Christ with the nations at risk of their lives because of his sacrifice. God wasn't just sanctifying Brainerd. God was sanctifying others through Brainerd's suffering. What about Jim Elliot giving his life as he was sharing the gospel with cannibals and led to the salvation of many? And not only that, to another arsenal of missionaries being sent out to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes it could be that we don't understand discipline enough as an act of love and a benefit of being loved in Christ. Have you ever thought that maybe that the person that you're so jealous of because life seems so easy is actually dancing their way to hell because God has not shed his love on them in Christ because they're not in Christ? See, getting away with sin might just be God's judgment being stored up for the last day when unfruitful trees not rooted in Jesus will be burned. But church, know that Jesus is building his kingdom in his local churches right now. You remember that David had a son who was going to build a house for him. Well, Jesus came and tore down the temple and he says, it's okay, I'm going to build it back up. In my house, it is a kingdom. It is a kingdom of the people of God who are being put together, built together as, built, as building bricks for a house for God. In fact, your spiritual gifts that we are given in 1 Corinthians 14, we are told is for the building up of the church. God's kingdom until Jesus returns. And we join Christ in his mission because... As goes King Jesus, so goes his kingdom. But a day is coming when we shall reign with him. There are far-reaching fulfillments of these promises. And the future, let me just tell you, brothers and sisters, is incredibly bright for those in Christ. So listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. This is a glorious end and how we're going to close. He says this, and this is for us. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. 
Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, catch this, we will reign with him. We we will reign forever with Christ. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithful, like the faithful son, like the faithful Jesus, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself, his son. Brothers and sisters, that's the hope that we have laid up before us. Let's go to this great God. We pray with me.